Father, we thank you that your enemy's days are numbered, yet your son has risen from the dead. We thank you that kingdoms rise and fall, but Jesus Christ, our Lord, is ascended. We thank you that nations come and they are like streams of water, even the heart of the king in the hand of the Lord. Yet our Lord and Savior rules from a heavenly throne at the right hand of the majesty on high, never to be dethroned or defeated. We thank you, Lord, that though your church may be persecuted in the meantime, nevertheless, every enemy will become the footstool of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that though the enemy wages a war against the church, the gates of hell cannot prevail against her, and in the end, we ride triumphant beside our Savior in his train, in fact, as he, on his glorious steed, celebrates his victory over all of history and over all of this world, and in the train of his exploits is a line of the elect, a parade of those redeemed, too many to count, and we will be counted among them if we trust and believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins. On his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords, and from his mouth proceeds a two-edged sword to slay his enemies. His eyes are flames of fire, his hair is white as wool. He has a golden sash wrapped around him, and his white robes of righteousness shine with the purity and glory and holiness that we share when he grants them to us to cover our sin. This is our Lord and Savior as we see Him exalted and enthroned and glorified. Lord, we only pray that You would be glorified equally in the praises of Your people, in the confession of the faithful, and in the understanding of Your believers and Your covenanted ones as we open up the glorious revelation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Your Holy Word. Today I pray that our hearts would bow before the authority of the spoken truth contained within the Scriptures And I pray that you would give us a deeper appreciation to absolutely love what you have written to us to equip us for the call. And I pray that you would encourage us in a day that seems to grow darker, that the light of Jesus Christ is more powerful than any shroud of darkness, than any shadow of death, than any plan of the evil one. Encourage our hearts, equip the saints, and glorify yourself by applying this word to take ground for the kingdom of God as a result. May you be glorified in every aspect of this service and use them as a means to encourage your people from the proclamation of the word to the singing of worship, to the fellowship of the saints, to prayers lifted before the throne of grace, to the table spread before us wherein the body of Jesus Christ and his shed blood are represented in these elements. Thank you, Father, for this time that we have. And I pray that in the end, you would seal it upon our hearts to bring more glory to your name still to draw the lost to repentance and faith in Jesus' holy name. It is in that matchless name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. This morning, what a glorious gift. What an amazing privilege. What a high honor it is for us to proclaim to gather in unity in the spirit and the bond of peace celebrating the revelation of Jesus Christ in His Holy Word. Let us draw our attention to the Scriptures by turning in your Bibles to 1 Peter 2, 21-25 today. Today, the first Sunday of the month, our communion, our Lord's Table service, we turn our attention to the book of 1 Peter, which has been the text for a series on these specific Sundays. The title of this morning's message comes from our text today, It's simply shepherd and overseer, two designations for Jesus Christ. We have returned, we have now returned, Peter says, writing to the church in chapter 2, the last verse, verse 25, 
to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We return, even through these means today, to the shepherd and overseer of our souls, turning our attention, even as we listen to the word proclaimed, to the one who is sovereign over us, who has provided for us, who protects us, and who has died for us. The aim of this morning's message is to exalt our shepherd Savior as our sacrifice and our example. He is our example, example and He is our Savior, Jesus Christ is today. And so maybe he, may He be exalted in the proclamation of His Word as both our shepherd and our Savior today, and as such, our sacrifice and our example. With your Bible open to 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25, would you stand once again as you're able out of reverence for the Holy Word of God and let's hear in our ears today as it's proclaimed the immutable truth of God's Scripture. 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Verse 25, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Turn in as a companion text to chapter 4, a page or two over. These five verses in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25 are central to major themes in Peter's epistle. Further examination reveals additional passages in his letter which reiterate similar, all-important truths. And one example of this comes two chapters later, 4, verses 12 through 19. Listen to how similar these words are. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial which comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This, of course, corresponds to the context of 1 Peter 2. We didn't read these verses, but our admonition is preceded by a call to suffer for the Lord's sake. Verse 20, chapter 2. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Similarly, Peter reiterates the call to godly suffering or suffering for the name in 4.12, as we've just read. He goes on in 4.13 to say this, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you and let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And he goes on, again, to lay out several themes. Let me give you a list. These are in your notes if you have a copy. Similar all-important truths are expounded in chapters 4, or chapter 4, 12 through 19, just as they are in chapter 2, 21 through 25. For example, this passage echoes the same ideas or concepts. And here's a list. Number one, purpose in suffering. 
Peter identifies that for the Christian, there is indeed purpose in suffering. Secondly, identifying with Christ. If Christ suffered, then we should count it joy to join with Him, identify with Him, recognizing that this is a privilege. Thirdly, joy in spite of persecution. That though we go through difficult trials, it nevertheless is a source of great happiness for us if we keep the right perspective. Fourth, Christian holiness. That our call is to become more like Christ and to embrace the righteousness that is now available to us through the power that His death secured and to shun the sin that we now die to, having been made new in Christ. Number five, the fear of the Lord. A high reverential awe, respect, and obedience of the same. Number six, gospel centrality. How the gospel itself and returning to it often is absolutely necessary for us to realize the power and purpose of enduring so. Number seven, big word, an eschatological perspective. Eschatological meaning that God is the author of history. And as such, He has ordained a future. And in light of God's ordained future, that perspective gives us grace to endure. Number eight, submission to the great shepherd, submission to our Lord. So those are just eight quick references to major themes and ideas that are echoed in 1 Peter 2 and 1 Peter 4. All of these aspects of the believer's sanctification are the equipment granting endurance for the elect exile sojourner. Kids, a little review. We are elect because we are chosen by God. Shout it out. We are in exile because we are far away from home. And number three, we are a sojourner because good job, Verus three for three. So we are an elect because we are an elect uh, person because individual because God has chosen us. We're exiled because we're far from home. We're a sojourner in that we're traveling. So we relate to this posture, this position as a believer in this life. The believer needs equipment, therefore, for this fiery trial as described in chapter 4. What is the believer's equipment? Well, we've just listed eight examples. Purpose and suffering, identifying with Christ, joy in spite of persecution, Christian holiness, fear of God, the centrality of the gospel, a God's history perspective, submission to our Lord. These are the points, the ideas, these are the concepts, these are the confessions of faith the convictions of the believer that provide equipment for us even though we have a difficult journey ahead of us. These provide equipment for the elect exile sojourner to endure through fiery trial in the meantime between regeneration, which is where you meet Christ in the first place and are born again, and glory when you ascend to heaven and occupy ultimately the new heaven and new earth. All the while, Peter reminds the church that these means are available to us via the saving work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. All this equipment is ours because Jesus died for us. Peter emphasizes a twofold purpose for the sufferings of Jesus in our text today. In dying on the cross for our sins, Christ proved both our sacrifice and our example. I'll use example and exemplar interchangeably. They're synonymous. and I like the term exemplar. If a uh, scribe was making a copy the exemplar was his reference. So he'd look carefully at the exemplar and then he would copy down his manuscript. In a similar way, Christ is our exemplar. He is the standard. He is the perfect one who obeyed uh, the Father to a T. And as such, if we follow him, take careful uh, care to study his life and ministry and that which he modeled for us, we, 
as scribes, so to speak, follow the exemplar Christ and learn the manner in which we are to walk. He is our exemplar, but he is also our Savior. His death gives us the ability to walk in his steps, to follow our good shepherd. In embracing a similar call, or we can rest assured of God's power and purpose in embracing a similar call as Jesus himself. The purposes of God in the gospel, even unto the suffering and death of Jesus, so the Lord of glory submitted willingly, Jesus, to the purposes of God in the gospel, even his own suffering and death. And if that is true, Peter says, then the exiled believer can rest assured of God's power and purpose in embracing a similar call which often attends our way in Christ. No one is a believer who has not confessed that the sufferings of Jesus have power and purpose connected to them. They realize that he died because their sins needed atoning for, and in his death was a power to take away our sin, and in his resurrection is the guarantee of eternal life. And similarly, we can draw from that that if God has ordained that we suffer, there is also power and purpose connected to our own sufferings as well. So in this, we pride ourselves, so to speak, in identifying with Christ. And we have faith that there is real purpose in this call. Peter grounds his admonishments to the church on the scriptures which preceded him, the Bible which he had in his hands, so to speak, the Old Testament. Thus he reveals that Isaiah 28 and Isaiah 53, which prophesied of a rock in Zion and a substitutionary sacrifice, one who would die in our place, were fulfilled in Jesus even as Jesus is also the good shepherd referenced in the all-familiar Psalm 23, Psalm 28, our worship text, and one more example is Ezekiel 34, which we may touch on later. These passages of Scripture refer to the coming Messiah as a rock and as a shepherd and uh, as a substitute sacrifice. And so Peter reveals how Christ fulfills all these Now, by way of application, before we shift to the main points of our sermon today, think, let me ask you a question. Who is the shepherd and overseer of your soul? Who is the shepherd and overseer of your soul? Very good answer. This is a question that we should ask of everyone that we come in contact with, or at least be mindful in the back of your mind. Think of the average you know, person just existing in culture as we know it today, and ask this question, for most people, who is the shepherd and overseer of their soul? Who do they rely on as an authority? Where do they seek protection and help? Who has given them guidance and light on their journey? Who has provided for them the means of hope for the future and so forth? Who is the shepherd and overseer of their souls? Well, as we think of this application, Note how many influences are vying for that position. We live in a world today with a million people or ideas that are fighting, competing to be the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We're in an election year and you have people that are going to be broadcasting their ad campaigns and stumping and their campaign speeches to be the shepherd and overseer of your soul. 
They're going to make grandiose promises that your economic and future, the safety of your country, rests entirely and completely upon their administration and their coming policies. And they beg you to vote for them, and in so doing, to place your faith in them as the shepherd and overseer of your civic soul, as it were. That's just one example. But think of how many other examples you could put in that place. The spirit of the age, the most popular ideas, the philosophy that uh, uh, is, uh, dominates the airwaves, the cultural trends that are popular at the moment, the political parties we've mentioned before, the intellectuals and higher academia and those who write books that influence others by nonfiction pleading their own expertise, the influencers, so to speak, on social media. That term influencers is significant. It basically says that there are people who are vying to be a shepherd and overseer of your soul, celebrities. And there's a whole class that I call the jesters and the jugglers. This is the entertainment class increasingly seeking to exercise outsized influence over you. I remember one negative example. Everyone's heard of the actor, uh, Matt Damon. I remember one time he was in an interview waxing all authoritative, and he was decrying the candidacy of a self-proclaimed Christian politician. And he absolutely said that they were disqualified, discredited, and not qualified for the position because they believed in creationism. He absolutely scoffed. He said, don't even believe in evolution. What an idiot. But then look at who Matt Damon is. He is a jester. If you go back to medieval times, the jesters and the jugglers were the athletes and the entertainers. They were the actors and those who can't. And so imagine you have, you know, your principality, you have this area, you have a lot of decisions that need to be made. You need the peasants uh, to be able to have their land at peace. You need to secure your borders. You need to have sound law. You need to have a, a hierarchical system to be able to manage all the affairs in your nation. And so you need some help in this regard. So you ask the guy juggling in the corner, could you give me some advice? You ask the guy, the jester, or cracking jokes. Hey, do you have, what's your opinion? Now, do you see, we live in a society that's so corrupt and so upside down and so compromised and so corrupt that the voice of the jester and the juggler, the athlete and the entertainer and the actor carries as much weight and authority with most people. They look to them as the shepherd and overseer of their souls more than they look to the holy word of God. This is a mess we find ourselves in. And in this mess, the word of God is as applicable as ever. And Peter would have us turn away from the jester, the juggler, the influencer, the political party, the cultural trend, the spirit of the age, the intellectual, the celebrity, and so forth, and look to Jesus Christ as the only worthy shepherd and overseer of our souls. Now, there may be others who have good causes and good ideas, but how would you know if they're good? Only insofar as they measure up to what Jesus Christ has written in his holy word. Not the latest, greatest idea or a hashtag campaign that comes down the wire. With that introduction, let me give you a heading. The shepherd and sheep relationship expounded. So Peter expounds the relationship between us as sheep and Jesus as our shepherd or overseer in the following ways. Number one, he expounds Jesus as our example, very simply or exemplar. Number two, he expounds Jesus as our savior And number three, he expounds on the idea of we as his servants or sheep. Jesus, our example, Jesus, our Savior, and we as his sheep. Notice what he says in verses 20, in uh, getting back to our our text in 1 Peter chapter 2. Notice what he says in verses 21 through 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
Do you guys remember when I was growing up, there was a popular book. I think it was eventually retitled, What Would Jesus Do? Does anyone remember that book? You probably do. If not, I'm sure you've heard that phrase, What Would Jesus Do? The original title of that book, I think, was called In His Steps. And I believe that that title was drawn from this passage. Now, the concept is certainly biblical. However, you know, closely that book soundly exegeted this text might be a question for a later time. It's been too long for me to comment on that. However, the idea remains biblical in 1 Peter 2.21 that we have been called because Christ suffered for us and in his suffering, among other things, he left us an example that we might follow in his steps. And the next few subpoints are the steps of Jesus. What are the steps of Jesus revealed in just the next two verses? Let me give them to you in short and then we'll study them more fully. Number one, he committed no sin. Jesus was our exemplar in that he committed no sin. What other steps did Jesus walk in? He spoke no deceit. Jesus was an example of one who did not speak deceitfully. Number three, when he was reviled, that is made fun of or harmed with words, he did not revile in return. And number four, uh, Jesus did not threaten even while he was suffering. And number five, he entrusted himself to the just judge. Jesus was an example for us in verses 22 and 23 in these five footsteps, if you will. Notice verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He committed, uh, before that it says, he committed no sin. So let's begin there. Jesus is our exemplar, committed no sin. Now, this sinlessness of Jesus overlaps with his Savior qualifications. In fact, all of these do. And let us take note of that. Why was Jesus sinless? Well, for several reasons. He was, in fact, God in flesh. He took on humanity in the incarnation, yet did not cease to be the second person of the Trinity. And this was necessary to fulfill the terms and conditions of atonement. After all, no sacrifice would suffice to die in our place unless it was blameless, without spot or blemish, absolutely perfect. Even the sacrificial system of old spoke to these terms. Therefore, Jesus is our example and Jesus secured our salvation inasmuch as he was sinless. Peter here is affirming the perfection of the Lamb of God. He's affirming, in as many words, the divinity of Christ and his humanity. Hebrews 4, the author expounds on this idea as well. In a famous or a a central passage to the concept of Jesus' sinfulness comes to us in Hebrews 4, verse 12, or let's see, 13, I believe, 415, excuse me. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So who is Christ in this text? Well, he serves in the capacity of our high priest. And as such, he can be our high priest because he is fully man. But in his fully God status, he was in fact sinless. So not only can he sympathize with our weakness, that is, that we can appeal to him as a man who lived without sin and fulfilled the original covenant made with Adam, but he, 
though in every respect was tempted as we are, was yet without sin. Therefore, he is the perfect God-man, the perfect mediator, the perfect between us and peace with God. This is so important. Because Jesus was sinless and because he was a man, Jesus became the perfect Savior. Jesus satisfied the covenant. And as Peter affirms him as a man, or as the author of Hebrews affirms him as a man, he mentions that he was tempted in every aspect as we are, yet without sin. And as such, he is our effectual high priest and also, as Peter tells us, our example. In other words, let us bring our life in conformity to the example that Jesus has set for us and trust that in his death we are released from the power of sin and let us seek to follow him. The author of Hebrews goes further to say in chapter 12 that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, even though it came with great suffering. And so we, following our Lord, can do the same. Again, the author expounds Jesus as not only the author of the covenant, satisfied it in his death, but also provides an example. 12.2 of Hebrews, look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so in these passages, we see some of these concepts, like we mentioned before, a God's history perspective, that is a larger view, eschatological, if you will, of God's purposes and sorrows. We see that Jesus endured, and even though he was tempted in every way we were, he did not give in to despair, discouragement, and to lust and adultery and lying and, thav- and thievery and so forth. And the falling short of God's law, he did not exalt and trust other idols in the place of his Lord, his God, as touching his humanity. He served and worshiped the one he served in light of the Father and so forth. He did not look to others, idols, as a shepherd and overseer and thus break God's First few commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, but trusted that if he was called to suffer, that his father had purpose and that his father would accomplish something through it. And that beautiful reality and blessing was enough to give joy and endurance and hope. And so this was the sinlessness of our Lord and his example that is set before us that we look to as our exemplar. Secondly, not only was Jesus in our example in that he committed no sin, but he spoke no deceit. In 1 Peter 2, 23, or 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. This is a direct reference to Isaiah 53. Peter relies on the book of Isaiah in several ways. We mentioned in previous messages that he identifies Jesus as the stone in Zion. 1 Peter 2, verse 6. And here he identifies Jesus as the Messiah prophesied in Isaiah 53. Notice Isaiah 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus' mouth was free of deceitfulness. He was an example of holiness in word. And in the truth that he committed no sin, our first subpoint and our first major heading, in that he committed no sin, we see that he was sinless with regard to his actions. In that he spoke no deceit, we see that he was sinless in regard to his word, his confession, his testimony. Unless you 
think that this is a passing and not as important, I beg you to remember Acts chapter 5, and you can study that on your own time. This is, in the apostolic age, the fear of God struck the church because a major sin was dealt with by the judgment of God in an instant that included the death of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Why were they killed by the just judge of all the earth? Peter entrusted Ananias and Sapphira to the, just, to the judge who judges justly, to him who judges justly, and he came with his judgment and struck them both dead. It was for the deceit of their mouth. They lied and said that they were giving all the proceeds of their land sale to the benefit of the kingdom and the benefit of the church, when in fact they had not done any such thing, but it held back. And so we see that deceit was spoken by Ananias and Sapphira, and even this sin of man- manipulating through words was worthy of of death. In fact, this illustrates the timeless truth of the scriptures that kids answer uh, kids have finished this sentence. The wages of sin is death. That is correct. Ananias and Sapphira learned that firsthand. There is no deceit. Now, in the time that these words were written and in our day, please note that rhetoric, the ability to persuade through use of speech was highly valued. So in this culture, the Greeks are famous for this. They thought the most valuable and appropriate use of language was that which would better your position in life, convince the hearer, win friends and influence people, and basically manipulate the circumstances to gain you an advantage. And this is the same today. I mean, there's any number. If you go, I guarantee at your typical secular bookstore, the self-help shelf is going to be way bigger than your Bible shelf. And what are these idolatrous tomes going to teach you? They're going to teach you how to use your consciousness, your interactions, your relationship, and your speech in order to manipulate and influence the world around you to gain a certain advantage. There's a huge market for this kind of thing. It goes from quasi, new age spirituality to certain use of your faculties to gain you a leg up in this world and so on and so forth. This is deceit, however. The highest value of speech is that which tells the truth about God and His world. And this is what Christian speech is to be dedicated to. This week, I listened to a very encouraging sermon. I can't recommend his ministry because it was fraught with all kinds of sort of charismatic weirdness, but there seems to be a repentance going on. The fellow's name is Todd White. Aaron sent me a copy of a message that he just preached. And I'll tell you, as far as that message goes, it was solid. Halfway through, he repented. He said, I repent. Because I feel like for the first 16 years of my saved life, I've been preaching only a part of the gospel. What he went on to say is he was presenting the gospel as a way to better yourself and actually acquire power. If you follow Jesus, you too could perhaps raise the dead. You too could perhaps have the power of healing. You too could be a mover and shaker. You too could have an apostolic pedigree, much like the early church had turned the world upside down. But he realized upon closer reflection that the part of the gospel that he had left out as he was proclaiming ostensibly, you know, the message of hope in Jesus Christ was the call to fiery trial, the call to embrace the sufferings of Christ, and the call to die to the flesh, and so forth. And he went on to use an illustration that Ray Comfort has grown famous for about the purpose of a parachute. And this man was in tears as he repented for deceitfulness in presenting the gospel as a betterment, self-betterment tool for your own life. The church is weak and anemic in many circles, in many ways, culturally in America today for this reason. Why? Because we have been deceitful with our tongues. 
We have been deceitful with our mouth. We have tried a pro-growth, big church, big box, whatever, seeker-sensitive. Danny calls it Satan-sensitive. I agree. A model of reaching the lost by sort of bait and switch. We proclaim and we advertise and we manipulate and we make an appeal to a person's you know, consciousness and decision-making faculties by throwing a little candy and baiting the hook with this and that, and then we try to catch the hook with the gospel after the fact. Somebody said, what you win them with is what you win them to, and that's true. And insofar as we proclaim a gospel that's deceitful, we are preaching a false religion. And only repentance will earn the kind of fruit that the early church saw. Hey, how, how do you think it went when Peter went out and said, you know, you should come and be a Christian after all. Ananias and Sapphira associated with the ranks. It was in word only, though, and God did strike them dead. So don't make this decision lightly. Okay, how many raise your hand if you want a better life now, if you want your best life now? I don't think too many people would raise their hand for that reason. However, if the Lord of glory is proclaimed in the fear that's worthy of his holy name, you can use that experience right then and there of a just God who judges judgely, striking dead a couple who is guilty of deceit of tongue in a moment and say, you better repent and believe and place yourself at the mercy of this God who holds your life in his hands and has a day of judgment to come and has prepared a hell for his glory to be preserved as the wickedness of sinners is judged in light of the great infraction against his holiness. So repent and believe. This is the undeceit laden gospel. This is the deceit-free gospel that we are called to return to, and so 1 Peter 2 has a lot of applications. At the risk of running on with these, let me continue to speed up my uh, list here. Jesus, as our example, committed no sin. He spoke no deceit. He did not revile in return. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. If you can flip there quickly, turn to Matthew 26. Matthew 26 records moments of Jesus' trial. And in this passage, Peter, this is the, uh, these, these are the moments that Peter refers to beginning in verse 59. Now when the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, this man said, Quote, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these, these men testify against you? Verse 63, But Jesus remained silent. Notice he did not revile in return. False accusations were, were sought. These men were testifying falsely. They were manipulating the evidence to imply that Jesus was guilty of something, a sin that he did not commit. Yet Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus does respond to this. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus answers in preservation of the Lord's glory, not in defense of his own civil rights. Jesus answers in preservation of the Lord's own glory, not in defense of his own civil rights. Jesus does not act out of malice, taking vengeance into his own hands, but is content to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. Following in his humanity the injunction that Paul would later echo Vengeance is mine, I will repay, thus says the Lord. 
How about us? Jesus modeled for us as our example, not reviling in return. He modeled faith in the superior power of the word of God and truth. Listen, we often act as if an insult against us is more serious and actionable, and a more serious and actionable offense than an entire sinful life lived in rebellion against a holy God. What gets me upset, aggravated, and really wishing for that perfect comeback when I'm out in public? Somebody saying that I'm going to put everybody's health in danger for not wearing a mask in the COVID era. And man, that gets my blood boiling. And I, you know, I, I admit there are times when I search through the mental Rolodex for a witty comeback that really puts them in their place. You know what I'm saying? What am I doing if I give in to this temptation? Well, I run the risk of reviling in return when someone insults me, even as innocuous as that might seem. But what does this do? It, makes my, it betrays a motive that I am more interested in preserving my own dignity than I am uh, interested in proclaiming that this individual that may not be a believer has lived their entire life as a sinner in offense before a holy God. Brothers and sisters, we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. He is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. In this passage, it says that we are servants of him. We have, in coming to Christ, we relinquish our identity, our right to be offended, as it were, personally. We have said we're not a law unto ourselves anymore. And in fact, we now defend the glory, the crown rights, the dignity of a holy God. And how we respond when we are insulted says a lot about the gospel if we capitalize on the opportunity. Never mind a slap in the face response against you personally, a personal insult. Realize that the person who's bringing offense against you, likely, if they're not a believer, indeed, if they're not a believer, has lived of offense against a holy God for as many years as they have been alive. And now why don't you speak for him instead of speaking up for yourself? This is what Jesus modeled for him. Every interaction, study them in the Gospels on a human-to-human level, Jesus capitalized for maximal opportunity to glorify the Lord. He became low, he exalted his Father, as it were. And so we are to follow in his stead, to look for opportunity not to revile in return, but to proclaim the gospel. God's word is more important than our dignity. God's word is more important than our rights. And I'm telling you, we live in an era where it is filled with opportunities to point out that rebellion against the holy God will meet its day in judgment. Providentially, God is dispersing, as I judge, judgment right now. And so let us point people to the real infraction, the real offense, violating the holiness of God by ignoring his existence or wantonly committing sins, disregarding his holy law. And let us make the big deal of the infraction, the sin, the highest crime. Some, you know, someone is standing before a judge and he has before him their rap sheet. Uh, one thing they stole, one is they stole a piece of bubble gum when they were five. And the other is that they raped a minor when they were 52. Which do you think he would focus on? Oh, I'm really troubled that this piece of bubblegum was stolen when you were five. No, that which is before the judge, the major infraction is this rape in adulthood and so forth, this horrific violation of the innocence of another. And that's the truth. When we are out there defending ourselves, it's like, it's like making the most important crime, stealing a piece of bubblegum. Meanwhile, this individual has lived offending God all the while, and if he dies tomorrow, he's going to hell. Let us 
lift up, let us take advantage of these occasions to share the gospel. Now, the other, the point that follows this is similar to that. Jesus did not threaten while he was suffering. When he was reviled, verse 23, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Contrast this disposition with the outrage culture spilling over in our streets today, boiling over this powder keg of protesting and violence that is taking place all over the place. Now, what is the justification for such a thing? Such a thing? The ostensible justification? Well, it's oppression, suffering. We deserve to make our voice known, to shout at the top of our lungs, and in some cases, some say, they would argue, in fact, to rile people up and to commit acts of whatever, vandalism and violence, we deserve to do so because we are oppressed. Christians are not to act this way. After all, Jesus, when he suffered, did not threaten. In fact, instead of taking vengeance into his own hands, as we've said, this final point, this gave Jesus the grace and strength to act in this way. It says he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is the final footstep in verses 21 through 23. Jesus is our example, committed no sin, spoke no deceit, did not revile in return, did not threaten while suffering, and uh, finally entrusted himself to the just judge. Jack and I have been having a discussion on how to use this phrase to pivot to the gospel. This is a phrase you often hear shouted in the streets today, quote, no justice, no peace. And so here's a way that you can pivot with that phrase to the gospel is indeed the case that unless Jesus dies for your sin, unless your sins are justly paid for, you cannot have peace with God. There is no just until there is justice, Jesus' blood covering your sin, Romans 5.1, there is no peace with God. Therefore, no justice, no peace. You see how you can use some of these popular slogans as a segue? Well, let me extend that and speak to another biblical principle. Unless one entrusts themselves and entrusts the nations, the reality of the nation's justice to the one who judges justly, there will be no peace in America. You see, most of the protest activist movements that are inflaming the tensions and emotions and actions of people in the streets today, they are crying out, yes, they are praying to, they're lifting up their appeal to those who will never be able to enact equitable, perfect justice. The government will never intercede effectually on your behalf. The government must appeal to Jesus Christ as the standard of justice to even have a hope of acting justly in any instance. So people right now are advocating for something that is impossible unless and until they entrust themselves and their nation to the one who judges justly. And until we do, there will be no peace in this land. Until the one who judges justly is magnified in our consciousness as the highest authority and appeal to intervene on our behalf, we will continue to declare war on each other for our egregious and petty offenses, and there will be unrest in the streets. But if we know that we can have grace to forgive our brother because the balances will be righted by the perfect judge in the end, a culture who believes in the final day of judgment and doesn't exalt government in the place of the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, they can live in peace with their neighbors. They can forgive. They can have a a settling calm upon human relationships, knowing that in the end, vengeance belongs to the Lord, and His vengeance, His justice is perfect. 
Good luck, America, lobbying for perfect justice by means of government interaction. It will never happen. God will not allow it to happen. God will not be mocked. He is jealous of his throne. And justice and righteousness is the foundation of his throne, period. So let Jesus Christ be lifted up in this land and let his church demonstrate through their faith and their confession that we trust ourselves and our nation to him who judges justly. No imposters. Jesus is our example. Second major point, Jesus as our Savior, verses 24 and 25. As our example, we've listed these five ways that in his steps we can follow as he commits no sin, speaks no deceit, does not revile and return, does not threaten when suffering, and trusts himself to the just judge. But now we have expounded the very power for us to follow in these steps. We can do as much, grow in as much, because Jesus is our Savior. Verses 24 through 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. When you return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, like we do even at the Lord's table this morning, you're acknowledging in your faith and your confession that he himself bore your sins in his body on that tree. And as such, then this give, gives, in fact, the power for us to die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus, as our Savior, number one, bears our sins. Number two, heals us by his wounds. And number three, shepherds us unto glory. Jesus, as our Savior, bears our sins, heals us by his wounds, and shepherds us unto glory. Jesus bears our sin in his own body. What Peter's referencing here is that he became a curse for us. He became the scapegoat, as it were, pictured on the Day of Atonement. Our sins were transferred to him, and he was killed for them. Our sins were imputed to him, and he bore them in his body. He became sin for us, as the scriptures say, that we might be free from the curse of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Theologians historically have called it the great exchange. We give to him our sin. He takes that sin and is punished for it. He gives to us his righteousness, his perfect law keeping, these steps of of him as our example in the place of our great wickedness. What a glorious exchange indeed. In his body he became a curse. Not only this, he became a curse on a tree, and this is with reference to prophecies from ages past. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So note the prepositions, in his body and on the tree, that we might die to sin. This reference goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21, there's instruction in the law. All of God's word is suitable and powerful and applicable. We may not realize it yet, but in fact, as the deeper you dig, the more profound it is revealed to you so long as the Spirit is speaking through its pages. And notice what you might think is an archaic passing law is actually fulfilled in Christ in Deuteronomy 21:22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... 
His body shall not remain all night on that tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. You know, Moses lifted up another picture of the same, a serpent, a picture of the curse on a a bronze serpent on a pole in the wilderness. And John said, in the same way, the Son of Man had to be lifted up. Deuteronomy 21 prophesied, it anticipated this moment by laying forth this principle that a man hanged on a tree has become a curse and even his body must be taken down lest the land become victim of the guilt of that man and so forth. And so it was when Jesus was lifted up on that pole, those whose spiritual eyes were opened realized that that man, that sinless one, had become a curse for them. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and said, all who look to the serpent will be healed of the venomous snake bite. So all who look to Jesus Christ will be healed from the soul corruption and the death and depravity of sin. This is Christ becoming a curse for us. He was hanged on the tree. Calvary's tree hung a cursed man on that day, the one who became a curse for us, that our curse might be taken by the punishment of another. Inasmuch Jesus is our Savior, bears our sins in His body on the tree. Jesus heals us by His wounds. He Himself bore our sins, again, 1 Peter 2, 24, in His body on a tree, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. I trust that's a familiar text to you because Isaiah has proclaimed as much again from chapter 53, that famous and specific messianic psalm. Peter quotes it in this passage. Surely, 53.4, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. There you have your justice and peace uh, reference in 53.5 of Isaiah. And with His stripes, He goes on to say, Isaiah 53.5, we are healed. Jesus, our Savior, heals us by His wounds. By His stripes, we are healed. What are we healed from? Oh, sometime back, uh, Greg was preaching, elder from uh, Lifespring, pulpit supply, and he preached on three Ps, that in Christ is deliverance ultimately from the punishment, from the power, and from the presence of sin. What does Jesus' death heal us of? Those three things. It heals us of the punishment that our sin deserves. It heals us from the power of sin over us, and it will eventually deliver us from the presence of sin altogether in glory one day. And this is the most profound healing of all. Jesus, as our Savior, bears our sins, heals us by His wounds, and He shepherds us. In 1 Peter 2, again, 25, as our passage is coming to a close, we find this language, For you were straying like sheep, but now, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus, as our Savior, shepherds us. Psalm 23, the Lord is my, what is it, kids? The Lord is my, I shall not, he, he leads, he restores, 
I will fear no. Very good. That's enough for the time being. We might have skipped over a verse or two, but very good, kids. The kids have been memorizing those that were reciting Psalm 23, the glorious truth that was prophesied of old of Jesus Christ as our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. They are recalling from that great psalm. Psalm 28, our worship text, study it more in your own time this week, again reveals Christ in prophetic messianic prophecy as our rock and our shepherd. Ezekiel 34, another cross-reference at a later time to study, 11 through 15, says that God will shepherd his people himself. I myself will shepherd them. And Jesus as such is an exemplar for the church as well. In other words, not only is Jesus as our Savior our shepherd, but he also models shepherding. And Peter says this in chapter 5. He says, verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And then he goes on to say the kind and compassionate, the long-suffering kinds of ways that leadership is modeled for us in the work of Christ our Lord. Jesus is our exemplar. Jesus as our Savior. And finally, we as His servants. So as Peter is expounding the shepherd and sheep relationship, there are three points really uh, briefly we'll leave you with. We as his servants and sheep do the following. We die to sin, live to righteousness, and submit to our shepherd. Die to sin, live to righteousness, and submit to our shepherd. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, and then in the context we might add, so that when, though we were strained like sheep, as we return to the overseer and shepherd of our souls, what do we do as we submit to him? We die to sin and live to righteousness. Last time we were preaching from this text and those around it, we noted that for a slave to be totally free from the claim of his master, no event was more profound in severing that union than death itself. If your slave had died, you had no claim to his labor. That was the most obvious and ultimate severing of the relationship between slave and master. And so that analogy is picked up in this idea that we are dead to sin. If we have died, then our master, sin that once ruled over us, has no claim on us anymore. And that severing of that relationship is ultimate. Death separates us as a slave from sin, the same way natural death would separate a slave from his master's claim to his labor. And this is the dramatic language the Bible uses to describe the newness in Christ that we have available to us when we seek to appreciate and apply the gospel. Because Jesus is our Savior, we are dead to sin. More than this, that to the negative, this to the positive, we are alive to righteousness. It says that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. In this sense, he, his wounds have healed us, killing sin and inspiring righteousness. Instead of hating and resenting the law of God, loving it and seeking to apply it. Instead of distancing ourselves from the mirror, which is the law that shows us our sin, it's looking longingly into it to find what Jesus Christ was like so that we might emulate, follow in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior. And in so doing, submit to our shepherd. This final point is the application point today, and it dovetails well with communion. Because today we have before us, presented in these elements, the very work of our shepherd 
in this memorial and in this proclamation. Jesus was killed in our place. And by virtue of his shed blood and his broken body, we have grace to die to sin and live to righteousness. And so we submit to our great shepherd when we partake of his table and glean from it the means to walk in a manner more worthy of the call. At the Lord's table today, we recognize that the saving work and the abounding love and the fearsome wrath of God is all portrayed at the communion table. Someone must die in order for us to be redeemed. And so Jesus was killed on Calvary. The Lord of glory became the Lamb of God to be slaughtered in our place. Yes, the shepherd, the great shepherd became a sheep, so to speak, to secure our salvation. And now we worship him. We worship him not just for this act, but because he indeed is exalted forever. Our Lord did not remain in the grave. We now have this relic of his work and redemption. But where is he now? He is ascended and ruling and reigning before the right hand of the Father. We remember and proclaim the power and purpose of his broken body and shed blood as we partake of these elements at the table. We testify as we take them in that it is these things that are the hope for our salvation. The fact that Jesus was killed in our place, that his body was broken and his blood was shed. We remind our souls that are tempted to be distracted by the old ways, the sin that still is present in some sense and seeks to cling to us, that it has no ultimate claim on us anymore. But because Christ died as evidence these elements, so death separates us as a slave to sin. And therefore, we have strength and grace as we walk in the Spirit and increasingly so to live to righteousness. The aim of this morning's message is to exalt our shepherd, Savior, as our sacrifice and example. I hope that as the word has been proclaimed, Jesus Christ has been exalted in your heart as your shepherd and your Savior. And that might move you to appreciate his sacrifice and to walk in his example. If you have not turned your heart to the Lord for your hope and stay and your salvation, I pray that the preaching of this message would not allow you to rest until you do. I beg the thing that you remember, if you are not a believer in the hearing of this message today, is that Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead by the God who judges justly in a moment, merely for what we might think is a minor infraction of deceitfulness of mouth. God is perfectly holy and just and to be feared, and there is a day of reckoning, and the only way of escape is his body and blood. This is what we remember and proclaim at the Lord's table today. Let us transition in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for that which you've provided for us today. Your word proclaimed these songs of worship that we hope have exalted your holiness in our minds and as our profession has gone forth to enthrone you upon the praises of your people, your sheep. And we also thank you for this table here, which dramatically lays before us the very means by which we were saved when Christ died in our place and when his blood was shed for the remission of our sins. Awaken our souls to appreciate and awaken our will to apply these truths all the more in light of what you have done and etching it deeper upon our souls through communion this day. Lord, I pray with feasting, reverence, and joy, and holy obedience that we would walk from this place, Lord, following more fully the shepherd and overseer, submitting to him. 
the one who has sovereignty and takes such great care for our souls. In his name, the name of Jesus Christ, the great shepherd, we pray. Amen.